Rob. You know how we're going to watch Chernobyl? I forgot how, like, I should have prepared myself to be depressed as fuck. Did you finish it already? No. I'm on episode two. Uh, mm. But my, my preliminary comment was when the when when the first scene started out with... Ba- well, second scene started out with a woman vomiting due to morning sickness. I was like, I wonder why they put that in there. And I was like... Oh, right, because everyone's going to be vomiting today. <laughs> well, you know, yay, vomiting intro podcast. Um, I'm, I, as the title of the podcast earlier revealed, Steven is also here. It's me. Um, which could only mean That's true. anything, really. I was going to say, don't say that it means it's review day, because we have... Evidence to the contrary that he has been here on non-book review days. Oh yeah, I broke the rules. Ah, I'm just saying, rules. you can't say that statement blanket. I am the rules. Well, <laughs> on the theme of fuck rules, I'd like to share with you guys my story from this afternoon of fucking rules. Hell yeah. Is it fucking rules or fucking rules? The first one, okay. not the second one. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm almost out of contact lenses, which I know this starts off as a very exciting story. Um, and <laughs> I wanted to get new ones, because that's usually what I do when I get close to being out of contact lenses, is I get more. Are they prescription-based? Yeah. I see where this is going. And so I went ahead through the effort of figuring out my health, my eye vision insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I... Figured it all out, called an optometrist, and I talked to the optometrist on the phone, and we talked about my insurance, and she was like, well, I'm not exactly sure how this happened, but it will actually be cheaper for you to come in as an uninsured person than to use your insurance. Oh, what? (laughs) Why? Because they have a different rate for insurance versus non-insured people, Mm -hmm. and my insurance is such garbage that it doesn't take enough off of the insured rate to get it less than the uninsured rate. Oh my god. Okay. Why is your insurance so bad? (laughs) Because it's 2019 in the United States. But you have a decent job, don't you? The man... The (laughs) benefits are not good. Um, Is it an HSA? No, it's not related. So even if I paid for this, it would not be part of my regular health insurance because the health insurance is separated from the vision insurance. So even in my high deductible health insurance plan, if I paid the $700 they wanted for an eye exam, it wouldn't go towards that deductible. So let me tell you what I did. I pulled a high school Aaron Roney. No. Yes. No. I w- I did a Google image search for an eye prescription are you sh- or a contact whoa, whoa, lens prescription. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Before we talk about this, are you sure that you want to immortalize this in audio? Oh, yeah. I am so proud of myself. Okay. I photoshopped my name into the prescription. I photoshopped my prescription into the prescription. <laughs> and I went to 1-800-contacts.com, <laughs> sent them that prescription, and... And they, I have a tracking number for the for the contacts that are coming. In. <laughs> yes. That saved me seven hundred dollars. Oh, seven hundred dollars! Seven hundred dollars. What they wanted to charge me to get my eyes checked, and that wouldn't even get me the contacts. That's just That's to get my eyes checked. The I would have then had to pay. Then I would have then had to pay for contacts. What the fuck? <laughs> right, seven hundred dollars for a year's supply of contact lenses. Oh jeez. This is why I Well, <laughs> well, presumably it would be the same problem if you needed to get a new prescription for whatever reason. Well, I've had the same prescription since like ninth grade, so I'm pretty sure that's going to be. Yeah. So the the question with glass. So here's here's my question. Do you? Because I don't know anything about uh, vision care. When you go to the eye doctor and they say you need glasses, do they give you a prescription? Yeah. Okay. In 10 years, if you need new glasses, do you need a prescription? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what I figured. So you wouldn't really save yourself that much by, you know, doing glasses. You'd still have to pay that $700 for the eye exam. 
Well, no, because there's two exams. There's an eye exam and there's a contact exam, so you wouldn't have Uh. to do the contact exam. I don't need the eye exam. I just need the contact exam, but it's by law that you have to do both. And you know why it's by law that you have to do both? Because eye doctors want to fuck as many people as they can, so they lobbied until they made that a law. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously. Also, (laughs) also, good eye health, Rob. That's the real reason. Let's be honest. I have seen an optometrist <laughs> once since 20... 2008. I have seen one never, and I'm wondering if I should do that one day. Uh, you don't need to. <laughs> uh, you just don't. Do you know what, Rob? I'm going to have to say uh, I support your decision, although uh, it is slightly risky because th- I'm pretty sure that's illegal. Oh, I'm sure it is, but I'm sure the fine is less than the eye exam. Would have <laughs> it's it's possible. I don't know what like whether it becomes like a misdemeanor or if there's like here's the deal. If you are faking prescriptions for Vicodin so you can sell it on the street, that should be a different class of crime than faking prescriptions for contacts so you don't have to do an eye exam. Right. Actually, you haven't heard of the new fun drug where you melt down contact lenses and then you snort them to get high? <laughs> so that's, see, Rob, now you're you're entering that crime space where we, we've got to regulate your activities here. Um, I, I support you, Rob, although I don't know if I would do the same. You'd think that things... So really, this is where my socialism bone kicks in. Like, that that exam should be free. It's preventative care. It's been free every other health insurance plan I've ever had. This is the Uh, first time it's not been free. Well, again, that's still like a failing of capitalism, right? Because there's a market where your company can basically give you the shittiest vision care on earth. I think a capitalist would argue that this is the exact reason for capitalism, is that this is a non-negotiable good. I cannot exist in the world without corrective vision, and so they can charge me whatever they want. And a capitalist is sitting there in their chair masturbating to the idea of having that control. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, but I think a good capitalist would also recognize that that's not an efficient that's an inefficiency in the system there's there's pure capitalists that would be like this is how it's supposed to work profits but there's also plenty of capitalists who go i recognize that the inefficiencies created by people upcharging the cost of obtaining an inelastic good is not ideal we should fix that we should regulate that um, maybe not so they may not say to socialize it, but they they would say we should regulate that. It's kind of like uh, you know part of Obamacare saying we're not going to socialize birth control, but we're going to regulate how much you can charge for it because or, or like how much you can screw people for it. Um, anyway, that's a separate discussion, but yeah, I think that's totally unfortunate. What are the system? I, I honestly don't care. Socialism versus good regulation. You shouldn't have to pay $700 to have your current state of your eyes reconfirmed just so that you can get another prescription of your contacts, which you have had since you were nine. Right? That just, that obviously is an inefficiency in the system. <laughs> yeah. Or and good on work, you, sir. Or working what? as intended. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Or, <laughs> so that's the thing. It's an obvious in my from my point of view, inefficiency in the system, some may say that it's working as intended. <laughs> and to those some, I say, go fuck yourself. Also, they have online eye examinations that you can do where you can get a prescription online just by looking at your computer screen and reading various things and checking stuff. But it still costs money? No, those are free. Oh, okay. But in Washington State, that's not legal to use those as your prescription. Why? Because eye doctors because have lobbied eye, to change the rules. Eye lobbyists, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, you know, when the new thing comes out where you can, like, scan your fucking head to find out whether or not you have strep throat. Uh, 
a lot of people are going to start lobbying against that. <laughs> when you, and then you're just like, you guys are just assholes, aren't you? You're just a bunch of fucking assholes. That's the... Man, that's the really weird thing about uh, capitalism to me is, like, things are supposed to conform to market demands and then people are like, hey, can you make it illegal to conform to market demands? It, so, yeah, and I think that's the thing where, in theory, that sounds great. People want that what they want and efficient and the market is perfectly efficient because it will recognize what they want and it will provide it to them. Until you realize that when companies, when the providers of those goods have enough power... They prefer to keep on doing what they're doing. Or if they have enough power where they would prefer to keep their business, right? They didn't invent that cool little gadget, and it's going to put them out of business. Now they care, and now they, and they have enough power to lobby against those types of things. That is obviously, it, it, in my opinion, that is a glaring flaw in the efficiencies of capitalism. When you have companies actively pro pro promoting regressive policies or, or policies that will hold our technology technological advancement back because they're too lazy to either ride that wave or change well even on like a uh, like a social or cultural level like all those articles that have been coming out in the last several years about our generation and all the different industries that we're killing and it's like people are almost mad at us that we don't want yeah. the same things they it's wanted like, yeah didn't you didn't you design capitalism for this purpose yeah like if it's not <laughs> if it's not desired it should go out of business like don't be exactly. mad at me that i don't eat at applebee's it, anymore or like buy diamond rings yeah and so that is an argument that i support that's why i'm generally a capitalist who thinks a few things should be socialized and a lot of things should be regulated Right? Like, generally speaking, I think those types of market signals are good, and capitalism is fairly effective at managing the demands of elastic goods like Applebee's <laughs> and diamonds, right? Applebee's and diamonds, in my opinion, are both elastic goods, and the market is pretty good at uh, making, like, building efficiencies into those systems where goods are highly elastic. I think referring to Applebee's as a good is pretty generous. <laughs> true, true. Valid argument. So, for the past, well, what we say, two months it's been since we first talked about this, uh, we've been reading a book called Sapiens, which was suggested to me uh, by, by a close friend. Um, I didn't exactly know what to expect going in. I kind of thought it was going to be like a book, <laughs> but it's somewhere between a book and a textbook. Mm. Like, it's not a textbook because it's interesting, <laughs> and it's not a book book because it doesn't... Like it's not it it doesn't read like a nonfiction book. It doesn't read it's obviously not a fiction book. It's a it is a it was a weird read. Mm -hmm. Like it was a weird experience to read a book like this. And and so what it gen what it basically is is it's kind of like the question that he asked is how did we get to where we are as a, as a as a species? And that was like a very general broad question. And he tried to answer it in, like, 500 pages. Yep. So I think it's safe to say that he made some pretty broad generalizations throughout the book. That, you know, I'm sure that if you get specific enough, you can poke holes in certain parts. And I'm sure that we'll do that a bit today. Uh, but overall, it was a very, like, brutalist take on human because he just, like... There's a lot of topics that are kind of taboo to talk about in society that he talks about like they're just normal conversation. Like, he talks about... he. I don't think he uses the word eugenics, but he talks about how, like, 
the benefits of eugenics, which is something that generally, like, you're not allowed to talk about that. Mm-hmm. He talks about the genetic differences between races, yep. which is another thing that generally we don't talk about. Yep. And he doesn't talk about them from, like, a societal or sociological perspective. He talks about them purely from a scientific, scientific yeah. understanding perspective of these things. And so it was kind of fascinating to have someone just, like, say a bunch of stuff that you just you don't hear people talking about. Um... I found it to be quite fascinating, personally. I hope you both enjoyed it as well. Um, there are parts of it that I'm, we'll talk about, I'm sure, that were, uh, I think, more controversial than I've... Than, he talks about every topic in the book as if it's, like, some known fact... He doesn't really speculate very much, or he doesn't make it clear that he is speculating. But some of the things, I think, are speculation. And he doesn't make that entirely clear in reading the book was probably the main flaw that I uh, I would I say is my takeaway. So that's my summary of Sapiens' Brief History of Humanity by a Israeli, uh, what, what, like, he's a, P, he's a professor of, like, history and something else, uh, in Israel. It's an anthropological work. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll pick up kind of where Rob left off. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. Uh, my biggest complaint is exactly what Rob said. And I think he could have fixed it just by maybe like one or two sentences up front that could have just been like, I'm going to say things that are, uh, either widely accepted or like 50, 50 accepted as fact. And, uh, you can just kind of know that I'm generally talking about these things as fact, even though I know that they are disputed. And my number one example, at least, or the most, one of the ones that was most egregious was the fact that, um, for example, he mentions how Alexander the Great was in a gay relationship. I don't have a problem with that. I have a more problem with that. He didn't qualify it with the fact that, like, a pretty large minor, a pretty sorry, small minority of historians actually believe that to be true. Like, I don't give a shit whether Alexander the Great was gay or not. I do kind of care that he stated that, almost as if it was a certainty. When, if you look up any information about that, it's a pretty small subset of historians. Now, his the rest of historians will say it's possible. And we have some evidence to believe that, but we don't have enough evidence to really, you know, hop onto that bandwagon. So, like I said, I don't really care. It's more of like I would have preferred he just qualified it with something like, uh, you know, some historians believe that Alexander the Great was gay and that his mother was okay with it or whatever. Like, that would have been fine, but it was just so matter of the fact that made it a little bit frustrating because I prefer things that are very clear and what you are saying is a factual statement versus what you are saying is a generally accepted position or a generally accepted statement or whatever. Beyond that, I love the way he talked about the, like basically what he talked about is the fact that for at least, you know, the the numbers of years in which Homo sapiens were on Earth is debated but it's generally accepted that it's it's at least 70,000 years. And one of the cool things that you don't really think about is the fact that other species of human, right? Cuz the genus Homo is humans. Other species of humans were on this earth for millions of years. And in many cases multiples of them uh lived at the same time as Homo sapiens. Now, we're the only species of humans that still remain, 
but uh, Homo Neanderthalis and Homo Florensianus or whatever, Floriensis, and species like that lived during the same, Homo egaster, like all lived during the same time as we did. And many of them died out somewhere between 10 and 50,000 years ago. And he talked about what our relationships with them might have been and the fact that basically human, like Homo sapiens, modern humans, spent more time on Earth so far with, like, side by side with Homo neanderthalis than we have spent without them, which is like a fascinating thing, right? Um, but the cool thing that I think the most interesting thing he talked about is all the revolutions. And the revolution that I never really learned in history was the first one, which is what he called the cognitive revolution. And he basically said, like, at some point in human history, human beings switched from being DNA-driven animals, like the rest of animals on Earth who are largely driven by what their DNA dictates, to animals that were capable of abstract thought in such a way that they could almost recode themselves and recode their society, like the societies that they were about to um, build by merely thinking in a different and abstract way. But he argues that for at least 50,000 years or something like that, Homo sapiens literally just functioned as DNA vessels as as every other animal on Earth does today which I thought was super interesting uh, that we had that capacity, but hadn't like employed it and not employed it collectively enough for it to change the everyday. It's like hunter gatherers didn't decide to be hunter gatherers. Their DNA dictated it. And to break out of that, it was having to think in the abstract. And one of his arguments was that no other animal on earth as a species will ever do that unless they have the capacity to go through a cognitive revolution like modern human beings have. So I thought that was like a really interesting kind of perspective on what humans are and how we work. And just, he did had a cool section about how corporations are completely abstract entities unless, and, and yet we are capable of talking about them as if they are real things. And he makes the point like you can, Remove all the people, remove all the cars, remove all the buildings, remove everything that is the Ford Motor Company. And yet the Ford Motor, like everything in the material world that represents the Ford Motor Company. And yet the Ford Motor Company still, quote unquote, exists because of the way that we've built it abstractly in our minds. And I just thought that was a really, he did a great job of explaining that kind of stuff. And uh, I loved it. I thought it's a really important read for people, for human beings, just to understand who we are, where we come from, how we got here, how many other species we've killed off, and uh, all the shit that we have to kind of encounter as we move forward in our universe. So I give it a five. Um, okay, so I thought the... Um... There was some of the like prehistory stuff that was interesting, like um, our like for how long and in what we, way we coexisted with other species of humans. Um, I'm gonna be honest. I got to page 425 before I stopped reading. I did not mm. finish this book and. It was not a matter of, like, I didn't have the time to. I just did not feel compelled to. Okay. Um, I can't think of any way to say this without sounding like a pretentious asshole. So I'm just going to say it. Um, I don't feel... I didn't feel like the book had anything particularly interesting to say or that it was trying to build towards some ultimate mm. point it just kind of felt like this is what humans have been doing since we've been here and like it's cool that it covers like our entire history it's like i can appreciate how broad its scope is but i feel like it wasn't 
particularly deep. Um, mm. And I don't know, maybe I've just like, I'm already, I feel like I was already familiar with a lot of this stuff. And that may just be from the fact that like, I was a sociology major. And I also like have read a lot of anthropological stuff too. Um, but um, I don't know, There, there's also like a part where he got into weird apologetics about like uh, imperialism, which I found bizarre. Like um, he seemed to be making the argument that like in the end, imperialism is great because like, look at all these great things that imperialism brought to the people that they conquered. And I'm like, yeah, but millions of people died in the process. And like, you can't really, you'd be engaging in like a huge of like speculative history to try and say that had those people not been conquered they never would have received those like philosophical or technological or cultural advances we can't really say that because that's not what happened they did get conquered and yeah. I, I don't know he seemed to be making a huge argument for like you know civilizing the savages by means of imperialism and he also just like there is occasional weird digs at communists that I didn't understand why they were in there. Or like, I don't think he just really understood like what communists think. Like uh, one of them that I highlighted was uh, uh, he mentions communists. And then, in, and then parenthetically says who claimed that Marx and Lenin had divined absolute economic truths that could never be refuted. Communists argue more about communist theory than any ever person i've ever met in my fucking life hands down there's not a single communist you could meet right now who would say that like you can never refute a single point that marx or lenin made that is such bullshit Mm. i i know that's a really weird thing to be nitpicky about but um so i would say that your point about the imperialism is that the point he makes is that in almost every country where they were conquered by the British imperialism, there had been a long history of other conquerors that don't, that did not bring the same level of advancement that the British imperialism took. Like, so he talks a lot about India in that bit. Talks about like all of the other different millions of people death wars that went on of the various conquests that happened in India that did not bring the same advancement uh, that the British made. And then the counter-argument to that is, well, you were saying British advancement. Was it really advancement? Like, who who's to say what's more advanced and what's less advanced? And, I, I mean, yeah, I had the same feelings you brought, you had about that part where, like, is he really, like, going to defend imperialist mindset where like i'm gonna take land because i'm more powerful than you i'm gonna take natural resources because i'm more powerful than you and i think he does actually do a pretty bad job of of sugarcoating that a bit but at the same time he does make the point that a lot of other it's happened everywhere where the bridge conquered it happened over and over and over again and in none of the other cases has there been as long of a peace afterward as when the British did it. So, so that is one point that is good. So, uh, yeah, I, my comment on the imperialist thing was, at least in my opinion, I felt like his his portrayal of imperialism was largely negative. And the only piece that he kind of, I, I think, at least from my perspective, what I was getting was the positive piece was about how much a how terrible imperialism had always been and how human beings at least as far as we can tell between like you know a hundred years ago and now have sort of figured out how to realize that it's bad like I thought the praise of British imperialism was less about the British conquering and more about the fact that it was one of the only cases where, despite some struggles, more countries under British imperial rule were peacefully separated from British imperial rule than were uh, violently separated from British imperial rule. Which is not great, but I thought his only positive point was maybe we've kind of figured out that this is not good and 
the British, while while imperialism is bad, they did better than anyone had before them of of backing out. If that's if that makes sense. The part of the book that neither of you have talked about that I kind of thought was the weirdest was how much of rose-tinted goggles he put on the hunter-gatherer phase of human history. He talks about how much like simpler and better life was then than now, or in these humdrum, boring-ass modern lives. I'm like, so are you saying that you would trade, you'd go back to no. being a hunter-gatherer if you could know that you couldn't have all of this? Like, He just talks about the hunter-gatherer phase of human existence as if it was all good. I, I disagree. I, I think... He wasn't talking about it as if it were all good. He was talking about it in, like, what do we as human beings value, right? And he's saying, if we're talking about happiness, like raw happiness, you could make a strong argument that the average hunter-gatherer was happier than the average person. Because here's the deal. We compare ourselves with hunter-gatherers and we can go, I totally don't want to give up the internet. But they don't know they don't have the internet. And so his point was, on average, they spent less of their time slaving away in a job that they didn't like and meeting stressful deadlines or whatever, right? Largely, they spent two, they spent two to four hours a day hunter-gathering and spent the rest of their day in leisure time. There's absolutely no way for him to know if they were happy or not. There's sure. just no way. That's like a spe- that's a wild speculation that he talks about as if it's fact. Secondly, we have no idea. They could have been living every moment of those other 20 hours a day petrified that any number of things is going to kill them. So, like, there's no way we could possibly know. But ask know. yourself this question. Do you, like, of the other, not hominids, but apes... Do any do you feel as though they are living every day terrified of the end of their existence? Probably the ones in nature do. Right. I, maybe maybe to a degree. I, I, I would just say Much more than I do. I, I mean his point was basically hunter gatherer humans, by the fact that they were able to band into tribes, literally became apex predators the moment they could band into tribes. And their, like, probably everyday worries were very limited. Uh, because, like, it was literally just getting food. And I'm not saying that he's correct that they were... Ha- and I'm not even sure that he was asserting that they were necessarily happier. Just that when his point... I think his primary thesis of that section was when we look back at hunter-gatherer societies and say to ourselves, that must have sucked, we have to recognize the fact that they don't know what they're missing, right? And so, think sure, if we went back in time, we would think it fucking sucks to be a hunter-gatherer, right? Where's my toilets? Where's my baths? But his point was, you go back to 17th century Europe, and by all accounts, or 13th century Europe, there are accounts from those times, and nobody is complaining about how bad everything smelled. And his point was, the reason they weren't complaining about it is because they didn't know any different. It wasn't, it's not like, me going back, I would fucking hate it. I'm sure the smell of 17th century London was terrible, right? But his point was, they don't really know the difference, and so it, that, function as a negative impact on their life is just not part of the equation for them. And I think that was his point. Not saying that it was better, but just that it's it's hard to say that we're necessarily happier because we are rose tinting the things that we have. And we rose tint it in being able to say, if I were to go back, I would I would want to come back to present day. Right? And he's just saying they having not known what present day could be, may not feel that way and may have been happy with their lives hunter-gathering or in shitty London. And and I think he makes a pretty strong argument, in my opinion, that, like, you can make the argument that, like, scur- like I thought he made a really good point about scurvy, 
Scurvy exists, existed because of the agricultural revolution. Like, if we did not have the agricultural revolution and people were still hunter-gatherers when they decided to go on their ships, there wouldn't have been scurvy because they would have brought all of the items that they hunter and gatherer on those ships. But because we had the agricultural revolution and because they just had porridge every fucking day for days on end, they did not get the vitamins that they needed. Right? And so he's just pointing out... You know what else exists purely because of the agricultural revolution? Living past 40. That's actually not true. So that's that's actually not I mean, true. Infa- so, so some people did, but like their infant mortality rate was so high. Exactly. The getting getting injured and dying was so high. I agree. Having any and kind of mild illness and dying is so high. Like, I agree. Their life expectancy is was dramatically shorter yes, than ours. But if you made it to say age ten or five or whatever it is, generally speaking, their lives were maybe 10 20 years on average shorter than ours like maybe they were living till 60 like most anthropologists believe that yes the overall life expectancy was very low because infant death rates were very high but if you made it to a certain point you were generally going to make it to 60 right assuming you didn't get injured and getting in, in like on one of your hunts Get an infection. Exactly, but get bit, again, like, his his argument would be, you're you're. We don't know, but you might be just as much, or if not more, likely to be injured because you're driving in a car every day or in a bus, right? Like, again, I I'm just dispute. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm disputing the fact that his thesis was that it was better. My my I I just I dispute you, I dispute you that that he 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 argued that it was better and I think it was pretty clear that he was arguing that it was better. I disagree. I think he he was just saying we can't judge because we're we are rose colored to. He our never way said that. I think you're putting your feelings onto what he no, said. No, he did say that. He literally said, "Take someone today and bring them back." We are we are interpreting those times from our perspective, whereas we are not interpreting those times from being born in that time. He literally said that, right? Like I think no, I think what he said a lot of over and over again were a lot of the negatives of modern culture without really exploring anything negative about hunter gatherer culture. He explored, and he talked about the high infant death rates. He talked about that's about it. He, he talked about how shitty modern life was for like four chapters and he talked about the infant mortality rate for three sentences. Like it was not a balanced discussion. I okay, I I disagree. I I, I think that like he he talked about it it's to me I think part of it is he doesn't feel compelled to have to talk about how shitty it was because we all think it was shitty right when he talked about the fuck i forget which queen but the queen that literally birthed 16 children of which one survived like that paints one big fucking picture that that would have sucked to live in that time period i literally cannot imagine the death you're taking an anecdotal story and applying it to an entire era of human history Maybe he didn't do a good job of supporting that with the facts of what the infant mortality rate was. But I think we all know that the infant mortality rate was very high in 17th century Europe, right? Like It was know- higher in the royalty because of inbreeding than it was in the out of the royalty, that- though. So, like, even in that, it's not painting a fair picture. I'm not certain of that. I, I mean... Have you looked up King Philip II of Spain? Again, anecdotal evidence. Like I, I, I know, but it's like if you look at royalty, there's a lot more of these issues than there was in the in like the regular nobility, which is where they had the lower infant mortality rate than the peasant class. But it's still sure. I'm just saying, even that he, I feel, I feel like he felt less compelled to talk about how much that sucked because we all think that sucked. I think we all think the. The medieval period also sucked. I don't think that's something he really had to explore because he did either. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people out here thinking that they want to go back to 1400s Europe either. Yeah, I I agree. So, but he explored that at length. The medieval period. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, to me, I feel like he was exploring it to set up the Enlightenment period, right? 
more so. But anyway, I, I maybe he was trying to say it was better then. <laughs> I'm just, I, I just feel like his primary point was we tend to view modern day society as better, and by almost all metrics, all scientific metrics, it is better. Which he didn't ever say. He did say. He, he very didn't say much, that. Yes, he did. He said, if you take any metric, he literally said, if you take any metric, today is better. Every decade. Except for happiness. Except. He, he ex- said, like, ex- everything is better except happiness, he which said, is a wild thing to say. He said, except maybe happiness, because it's harder to quantify. It's easy to quantify infant mortality. It's not as easy to quantify how happy people are with their existence. Right, that that was his primary point. I feel like in it, that section, it is a wild leap to me to say everything is better except for happiness. That is a wild again, thing to believe. Again, I disagree that he made that statement. He made the statement that we know for certain that the scientifically, the empirically definable facets of human life are better, and they have been better every decade that we've been counting them since the ninth, early eighteenth century probably right every decade of of human history that we have recorded has been better than the last in every every metric except we don't have a good way to quantify happiness and it's possible it's possible that quantifying happiness is hard and maybe people were happier with their lives when they sat around as hunter gatherers, I don't. And think to he was me, that's an irresponsible thing to say. Like, it's an irresponsible thing to even suggest that everything is better. Again, he didn't. But suggest- maybe happiness is not. Like, that's an irresponsible like conclusion to come to after saying everything else is better. Like that. How could you possibly make that thesis that everything has gotten better? <laughs> You know, okay. healthcare has gotten better, science has gotten better, life has gotten easier, there's less physical labor, there's more food, there's, you know, more, like, everything has gotten better, but maybe we're less happy. What are the, like, that's okay. wild. Fine. That's what are wild. The, what are the metrics upon which you measure your life? First off, it it's also a pointless thing to measure, because happiness is is not an objective measure. Like, it's Correct. not an objective that's, thing. That was one of his points. Everything can't get better except for one thing. Like, it's just, it's not how anything works. It's just like Occam's razor. Like, it, it, if it's the simplest answer. It can, though. Like, I, I, I can give you metrics about your life that will change, that will all be quote unquote better, and that does not mean that you will be happier. I mean, I personally. But not everything. I can. We can make everything "quote unquote" better, and it does not mean that you will be happier every day. Um, this isn't anything that was uh, discussed in this book in particular, but um, I have read read other things that um, suggest that because our brains are basically still wired like they were thousands of years ago that um like our our modern sedentary lifestyles are like for the average person are probably the least conducive or one of the most least conducive like situations we could have put ourselves in to lead like happy and satisfying lives because we are designed to adapt to new circumstances rapidly and because of that like not having lives where there's not a whole lot of variety and stuff it's like you can buy a new house and it can be a huge upgrade for you can be the biggest house you've ever lived in and you can live there for like a year and then pretty soon your brain's just going to go, okay, what's next? And it, it's because we're supposed to be highly adaptive and have to be in constant change, constantly changing surroundings. And instead, like 
a lot of our lives have been like very strictly regimented and I, I can tell you, I don't have the specific means by which they were getting these metrics for like, uh, life satisfaction and happiness or whatever, but I can tell you the book I read where I found this information and it was actually based on studies. He's not just like pulling shit out of his ass. So, but he, I, I believe this author also touched on that, how there are some studies that show that if, if people's peer groups are about the same, on almost all levels of the socioeconomic scale, they will rate happiness. But as soon as there's something to want, maybe like maybe some somebody in their peer group has something better or whatever, then their happiness decreases. It's less of the like you know, the fact that you're not happy and more of the fact that you know there's something else. And it's that knowledge of the something else to attain or something else to get that makes you unhappy that you don't have it. Which, I mean, kind of goes along with that. I see what Rob is saying, and um, Aaron, I I will say that <laughs> granted, I didn't even finish the book, but from I, I don't necessarily know that there is as much in the book supporting your point that you think there is. Yeah, I, 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 there may not be. It may just be my interpretation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would need to reread it for that purpose. Uh, again, I, I, like, honestly, it's the same with you. I interpreted the imperialism section almost the exact opposite. My interpretation was... Most of the times where you guys are saying he interpreted something, I, I feel like I got that sense, but I got the sense that he was just trying to get us to think about it. It right, like the guy who invented fertilizer, like, and I think he mentioned this. this is this a fact that he mentioned? I forget, but that guy won the Nobel Peace Prize, and literally he went on to invent some of the most heinous chemicals used in Nazi Germany known to man right like he he but at the same time he invented what probably saved billions of people from uh starvation in the 20th century so there are like and i think that was a lot of what he was saying a lot of the way through the book is that everything we do comes with good and comes with bad and I don't think he's trying to say that the agricultural revolution was bad, but just that there are side effects, there are consequences, and you know some of those consequences take us longer to realize than others. And I think it's a really good point that for twelve thousand years of human history, we've been uh, you know cultivating wheat, and it's just not that good of a substance overall right and so his point is that's great we built great societies and tons of cool shit based on that but there were unintended consequences and part of those unintended consequences is that our vitamin profile for those years were was probably not as good as they could have been now today we can fix that with just multivitamins and shit so you can literally eat shitty every day take a multivitamin and survive and I thought that was a good point that he made that that did we discuss this? I thought it was a really cool point that you are less likely than ever in human history to die of starvation today, but you are more likely to have a bad diet, right? Because you cannot starve on not high nutrient food, but it's not high nutrient food and and, and garbage is yeah. also the cheapest food. Exactly. It's the cheapest food. And so he's like, so you just, again, I, I, I don't think his thesis in saying that is uh, not starving is bad. We should be starving people. It's, look, there are these developments and advancements we've made. It's really cool that less people starve to death now than ever in human history. 
but that doesn't there are negatives that go with it and yes imperial i thought to me the thesis of the imperialism section was we're a bunch of fucking assholes was my was what i thought he was trying to say and but at the very end it was and yet there were some positives and it's the same thing mcdonald's has a lot of negatives or a lot of positives but it has a lot of negative it has some negatives too so i don't know if i had the same takeaway from the imperialism section that you did I think he was, in a lot of ways, defending what the British did. But I thought that in and of itself was interesting, because there were some positives. And they never get talked about because it's not politically correct. Yeah. The negatives are always talked about, and they should be. And it's I'm obvious. not arguing that they shouldn't be. It's not just obvious, it's horrible. Yeah, no, I'm saying it's obvious and it's horrible, right? But to say that there was nothing good that ever came out of it also is disingenuous. And I think that's an interesting thing to hear, because you don't. I, that was what I was trying to say when I feel like it would be like a, an impossible feat of like, speculative history or like hypothetical history to say what wouldn't had happened if but all those lands hadn't been conquered we don't know so i mean you can say that it brought about some good things but we have no way of knowing if those good things would have just happened or better or would have just happened eventually over the course of time without people getting conquered on the exact same that exact same path of thought, though, you could also say we don't know that if the British had come, all the people wouldn't have died under the next rule within that same country. Like, both sides of that argument are true. I, I, I'm, I'm not even trying to address uh, the British uh, Empire specifically. I just mean, in, in general, he, he seemed to be like, he would go back and forth by being like, yes, this many people died, but the people who conquered them brought this thing. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to address any one particular empire in, specifically, just in general, that seemed to be his point. And I think it's impossible to say that had those people not been conquered, those advancements would not have happened eventually throughout the course of time by some other means. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but he's argue he's talking about the history that did happen. Like, what did did happen is what he's talking about. So, yeah, the whatever advancements or good came of British imperialism c- could very well have happened, maybe even sooner had it not happened. But we'll never know. So he's just talking about what did happen, which I thought was interesting because that is something we can actually talk about rather than speculating about what could have happened or for the good or for the worse. We can't because it did, like you said, it didn't happen that way. It happened the way it did happen. And so when you hear a piece of history as all bad, like there are lots of things in human history that we only talk about from the negative side of it. And he took some parts of it and said some of the positives that came out of it, which I had never heard before because it's just not okay to say the good things that came out of a bad situation, right? It's never okay to talk about that. And I thought it was interesting that he he did do that a lot in this book, which is, I think, what he did a lot with the hunter-gatherers. We always hear about how bad those times were, and he was talking about perhaps some of it was good. He didn't do that with the Middle Ages, though. He really did just shit on those the same way that everyone else shits on those. It's <laughs> a pretty yeah. terrible time for humanity in general. No, you're, you're definitely he, right, Rob, and, like, I what I'm getting from this conversation is I think that um, we all saw what he was saying through a different filter. Um, Yeah. Which is very interesting. uh, I will say, despite everything negative that I've said about this book, um, if you are, if you have never or rarely thought about this kind of stuff, um, this is a this would be a great like general overview of human history that will introduce you to a lot of concepts you've probably never thought about before. 
Like if that's what I'd say. Yeah, if I were you and I'd read a bunch of anthropology stuff, then I probably would have stopped reading it too. But because I hadn't, there's so many cool things that I didn't know about that I thought was awesome to know. I felt like you, like I couldn't call myself a human because I didn't know it, and then now that I know it, I feel more complete. Yeah, like th- thinking about s- stuff like, uh, like why was money invented, or you know. Um, yeah. Or like why was religion invented? Like what what impact did, did uh you know that the agricultural revolution have on how we lived our lives and and stuff like that. There um Yeah, there, there it does cover a wide range of topics and it doesn't and and I think he does so pretty well. It's just um I felt like it was lacking a, a narrative and an amount of depth, depth. that I would have liked. Yeah. I would like to piggyback on what Rob said and say that I think the thing that interested me most is that even the things that I did know about, like the agricultural revolution, part of what he did good, and maybe some of us liked it, some of us didn't like it, is give at least some credence to the other perspective, right? Like imperialism we like mostly when you learn about imperialism you're like this was a lot of white dudes being assholes (laughs) right especially when he talked about the part with like cortez and how he like purposefully told them that he was in coming in peace and then like anyway all that kind of shit was was bad but the same thing with like the agricultural revolution as i learned about in human in like uh world history class was we then we invented agriculture and yay humans and i liked the fact that it was at least like then we invented out uh, he was like then we invented agriculture and there were a ton of positives and here's what it created but there were negatives and one of the the cool points he makes is every time we went through one of those revolutions there was no going back and i think you could make the argument it's like the internet age i feel like the internet age is a is a revolution. The fact that a vast sum of human knowledge is at a lot of people's fingertips and will hopefully be at every human being's fingertips within 20 years. And that is irreversible. There will be negatives. And I think that if you look at the internet age in the lens of 200 years from now, history classes will probably teach, yay, humans, internet. But there are negatives, and some of us are living through some of those negatives, right? And, and I think that's what he did a good job of showing is that there were things that we did that were positive, that we see typically as positive, that had negatives. And there were things that we did as we typically see as negative that had positives. And I think he specifically brought up Fritz Haber for that, for that purpose. This was a guy who probably saved billions of lives and then he also went on to invent some of the most heinous heinous chemical weapons that humans had known of up to that point. And it's like everything is good and bad, nothing is just this yay humans or sad humans type of thing. That's fair. I'm a fool, Aaron and Steven. What does that mean? Uh, I thought that when we started talking about this book 13 minutes into the recording, that there was no way we were going to fill an hour. <laughs> <laughs> now, we all had some uh, some hot sports opinions about this book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, whose turn is it to pick the next book? I believe it's Steven's turn. <laughs> okay. Do um, you guys like learning stuff? Yes. Okay. Um, Fucking hate learning. <laughs> Fuck school. We're. I feel like revisiting a book that um, my freshman year in college uh, blew my little nineteen-year-old mind. <laughs> um, it's called the, and I still want to see if that's the case and how I feel about it now. Ah, yes. It's called The Way We Never Were, American Families in the Nostalgia Trap. Um, Interesting. I okay. That does sound fascinating. It does. I agree. It's by Stephanie Kuntz. 
Um, the that sounds like a rude word. <laughs> the Amazon description of it says, uh, "The way we never were examines two centuries of American family life and shatters a series of myths and half truths that burden modern families." Placing current family dilemmas in the context of far-reaching economic, political, and demographic changings, changes, Kuntz sheds new light on such contemporary concerns as parenting, privacy, love, the division of labor along gender lines, the black family, fem- feminism, and sexual practice. Ooh, sexual practice. It's fun. Cool. And uh, granted, it's a little dated at this point. They came out in like 93, but... Um, Wrong. What? 92. Uh, thank you for that. Wrong. For that swift and forceful correction. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I thought it was super interesting when I first read it. It changed a lot of what I thought about just like how things worked in general. And it does a good, like the title is very telling. It does a good job of like, taking all these ideas that a lot of people from like generations prior to ours, prior to ours really like to espouse is like back in my day, we did this and that. And she's like, yeah. actually you're, this is some kind of like fantasy that you've concocted from a bunch of other different time periods. And you didn't actually live that reality. Yeah. Well, I'm actually kind of excited about this. Uh, this looks like it's going to be an interesting read. I hope that 19-year-old Steven is not disappointing. <laughs> Me too. I mean, like, I I, I would credit uh, this book with, like, being one of the big factors in me, like, deciding to major in sociology because I, I just found it fascinating. And uh, it was just, like, doing that for four years was like a a fun, like four year long process of completely changing tons of like preconceived notions that I had before going into college. Well, that will be what we talk about in August. I am no longer going to give a specific (laughs) date because shit's fluid. Yo, it's fluid. Yo, this one's much shorter. It's only like 200 something pages. Whatever, we just read a 700-page book, so you guys can read this. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, I wasn't saying... I was just saying, I don't believe it's 200 pages. I'm totally cool. Like, I don't care how long it is. If it gets close to 30, we've decided if it gets close to 30 or, like, past 25, then you get two months to read it. Um, But... Aaron had us read Infinite Jess. I don't think he gives a shit about page (laughs) limits. Dude, I've got some others. Like, I'm, oh, I'm sure you. I'm do. trying to figure out what my argument is going to be to see if you guys are willing to read the Fountainhead. <laughs> That's an Ayn Rand book. Yeah, Ayn Rand. But, but here's the deal. I feel like I hate Ayn Rand uh, and her worldview. Not her. Her worldview. Oh, I hate her. Uh, just based off of like what I've heard, and I have actually no. Uh, I've not read any of her work, and so I feel kind of like a fraud, assuming that she sucks, even though I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like it. I want to confirm for myself that I'm not going to like it, not just be one of those people who just doesn't like it, you know? Now, I've heard this only from people who are politically like-minded as myself, and I feel like both politically and socially like my like myself but those that have read it say that not only does it suck in concept, but it's also not very well written and not very interesting. Uh, but I think that could also be, and they're usually talking about Atlas Shrugged, because let's be honest, that's the famous one. Yeah, um, um, yeah. But that could also just be, like, you can think something's terrible for one reason and then makes you feel like it's terrible for all of the other reasons as well. Yeah, I, I I think I could be pretty good at separating that, like writing versus content. Um, I don't know. If you guys don't want to read it, that's fine. But it's just kind of on my mind that I'd like... I don't like being in a place where I just dislike a, a person or a set of ideologies based on just what I've heard. I mean, it's been a while since I've hate read something, so 
Uh, <laughs> have uh, you read The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged? No. Uh, so at least none of us would have read it. Those are... If the title of this podcast is hate reading, <laughs> hate... don't be surprised. There's some hate, hate chonky books, though. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, about 30 hours. That would be a two It would be one thing to get through a hate read that's like Five 10 minutes. to 15 hours yeah. long. But, like, you're asking me... I hate Red Infinite Jest, and I hate Red Infinite Jest. I'll tell you what. <laughs> that book is so pointless. I don't think you would hate... I think you would hate this in a different way. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I think uh, this will have a point, but it's point you will disagree with heavily. You know what, Aaron? Yes. If you've ever hate read something that actually made you better, post about it on our Facebook or send us an email <laughs> at still got nothing. That's a good idea. At gmail.com or on the Facebook page, still got nothing. It's a group. Um, Steven has a podcast that he's going to tell you about now. What we should really do is have you record this spiel and then just, just stick that in. Every time. What it's if, genius. but, no. <laughs> but then you can't update it with what the newest if, stuff. No. <laughs> um, I have a podcast. It's called Mind the Headspace. Um, it's a monthly podcast of DJ that are at least 45 minutes long that feature DJs and producers from the DFW area and uh, tends to be of the more eclectic kind of left field variety. It's definitely not um, top 40 electronic music. And um, So you're not going to have any Avicii or Deadmau5? Do what now? Marshmallow. Avicii or Marshmallow or... Uh, hold on, I'm trying to be cool. Top 40 DJs. What's the guy's name with Blue? Jonas Blue? I don't know. I don't, and then... I don't know anything about that. These are like top yeah, like, dance music. Yeah, not going to be or, or Dead Mouse or like DJ Carnage or, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> Major Laser? Major Laser. Major, Major Laser is only like 50% bad. <laughs> There's actually some major laser songs I like. I saw him play at a music festival mm-hmm. once, and he spent a lot of the time telling everyone how drugs are bad, and I lost a lot of respect for him then. That's bizarre. Was it just? It was just one dude because major laser is actually three people. No, it was the whole thing, and they had like a whole dance crew, and they had like la- lasers. <laughs> I didn't even. <laughs> yeah. You didn't even put those <laughs> together. But yeah, that's about it. Also, um, 